I will set out for Gaul myself and confront our enemies. They will learn the error of their ways. But why might early Christians have called Nero the Antichrist? I will quash my deluded enemy, not with the sword. I intend to sing to them. Nero has lost his mind. Welcome back, everyone, to the Life of Nero series of the Life of Caesar podcast, episode 18, where we continue our conversation with Professor Edward J. Watts about his latest book, The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea. You know, you mentioned in your book, and obviously most famously Augustus, if, if like late Augustus, if he's criticized for anything, it's that he failed to really leave behind a succession mechanism that mm. would avoid the worst excesses. And he struggled, of course, during his life trying to figure out who was going to succeed him. He had a lot of candidates. Yeah. They they always ended up dying, dying through means fair or foul. <laughs> um <laughs> And on his deathbed, he's basically, the the way that we put it in the show was, you know, I'm sorry, everybody. It's got to be Tiberius. Uh, I wish, really, honestly, I wish I had a better option. Uh, Somebody else. He's a real sourpuss. None of us like him, quite frankly. Even his mother doesn't doesn't really like him. But, yeah, well, sorry. (laughs) Sucks, I know, but it's got to be Tiberius. Um. And and obviously, then we get this succession of guys who have their merits, and and you know I tend to believe that Caligula gets a bad rap. I think uh, Nero gets a bad rap as well. But, you know, but what do you expect when you make eighteen-year-olds the emperor? When you give the, you make an eighteen-year-old mm-hmm. the most powerful person on the planet. Shit's not going to really go well. You, you got to. That's just stupid. It's a stupid idea, right? And again, Augustus didn't say, "Hey, by the way, no one under the age of forty should ever have this job," because quite honestly, it's a big job. And um, but quickly for us, like, uh, do a sort of a recap on the Julio Claudians here. Um, you know, what are your major thoughts on? how it got worse between, say, the death of Augustus and the death of Nero? What, what are the highlights for, from your perspective? Um, you know, I think what's interesting, and I'm particularly interested because you guys are talking about Nero uh, right now, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. But I think what Nero was doing um, is playing basically a, a long game because he's young. And I think we actually can understand Domitian in a part, in part by understanding Nero and also ultimately understand Trajan and Hadrian in particular by understanding them. Because I think Nero's pivot to the East was actually very forward thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, he is a young man and he's mm-hmm. been constrained by the sort of Seneca, you know, Italian nobility. But that's not actually where the wealth of the empire is. That's not actually where the most important people in the empire are anymore. Um, and the genius Augustus had was he he builds an imperial aristocracy from people from like Cisalpine Gaul and from the, the groups of people that got citizenship following the social war. And that's a real challenge to the old Republican system and the old Republican families because they had created all of these barriers to people from those regions being integrated into the power structure. 
And Augustus's genius is you bring these people in, they're loyal to you. I mean, they're super loyal to you because they don't have mm-hmm. anything but you. They're appreciative. Mm-hmm. And I think what, what Nero was understanding um, was that he was dominated in the 50s and early 60s by this senatorial group that was basically dated. <laughs> they, were, mm. they were not the center of power in the empire anymore. Mm. And the challenge if you're young and you're working with basically an aristocracy and an elite that were the people who were powerful 20 years ago is the people who are going to be powerful in 20 years. If you can't integrate them, they will challenge you. Mm-hmm. And I think what Nero was understanding is I need to basically pivot away. These people, first of all, are not loyal to me and they see me as a child. But second of all, I personally will be around when they are not. And what is it that I need to have built so that I'm secure and I can build an empire in a way that I like um, so that 20 years from now, when Seneca is long gone, I'm still secure and I can still run this place. And Mm -hmm. I don't have people who are really wealthy and really influential building these regional power bases that I can't incorporate. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think Nero's problem is he's, he's thinking way ahead of himself and he doesn't execute it very well. But I think the idea was right. You know, I think that what Nero was doing was playing a long game because he's a young man. And the reaction to it came from old men who don't need to play that game because they won't be around in the realm that ultimately Nero is imagining. Um, And Domitian runs into a similar situation. Um, Domitian is really, really eager to bring in consuls and and senators from the East um, Mm -hmm. because Domitian is building a power base that counteracts this – you know, that counteracts this old Italian and Cisalpine Gallic power base. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the people he's relying on are, you know, Spaniards and people from Gallinarbonensis and people from the East in particular. And it works. But of course, Nerva is that old Italian power group, that old group of people that, um, you know, Augustus had, had risen up and had become the, um, the core of that empire. And so I think what we have to understand with the Julio-Claudians is, in you know, a Nero doesn't, I think, get enough credit for understanding what his life as an emperor, what this lifetime job actually means when you're a young person holding it. Mm. And how um, I think he understood that listening to his advisors who are old is not going to get you to a place where you're comfortable and healthy and secure when you are old. In fact, Mm. it's probably not even get you to the point where you get to be old. Mm. Um, Mm. But he didn't have the capacity to do it right. I think that's the thing. It's not the vision. It's the execution. Mm. Um, and, you know, and, and so that's maybe what I would say with the Julio-Claudians is there was a potential pivot that they could have made. Um, and I think Nero understood it. And I think Nero intuitively wanted to try to do it. But I don't think he was capable of actually making it work. Um, but, you know, it's not inconceivable that Nero would still have been emperor in 96 when Domitian was doing this. And it actually did seem to work reasonably well. Mm. You know, the early nineties, when you have all of these fake Nero's rising up in the East, Domitian is able to counteract that not because the Italians are loyal to him because they're not, Mm -hmm. it's the governors who are Easterners who are Greeks who are loyal to him. When the fake Nero comes out, the last fake Nero comes out of Parthia and tries to raise a rebellion in the East. The mm-hmm. Italian governor is okay with that. Mm. The Greek governors are loyal to Domitian. Mm. And, you know, if you do the math, right, this is 
around 90, Nero should still be alive or could still be alive. That's the execution of his vision. Um, And, you know, I think if we give him credit for having a vision, we can see that it wasn't wrong. The way he did it was probably not the best. But um, but his view of the future of the empire, you know, you could have had a Julio-Claudian pivot um, that would look a whole lot like the early Antonine pivot. Uh, mm-hmm. And it and I think would have worked. Well, I, you mentioned um, the Antonines there again. I, something, it just reminds me of something I wanted to talk about earlier when we were talking about Marcus Aurelius. Because one of the takeaways I got from reading your book uh, was, as you said earlier, like if you look at the the Antonine period, Aurelius's period, a lot of terrible things going on in Rome, but it's the the nature of the leadership. He chooses to focus on the positive and pulling people together despite smallpox and, and, and famines and all this kind of stuff going on. Is, is that something that you find repeatedly throughout this story that it, at the end of the day, it's not really what's happening that matters. It's, it's the quality of the leadership that matters, the ability to rally the people together that at the end of the day determines the success or failure, or, or certainly from um, how they're remembered for the, the leaders, the emperors. I think that that's fair. Um, I think that's a fair characterization. I think that it's less about what you're experiencing and more about how you feel um, when you come out on the other side of that. Uh, I mean, there are really, really terrible moments across this vast time of Roman history that end up with Romans feeling good about their society. Um, And that is, I think, the most important takeaway, right? If, I mean, decline is real, but what you do in response to that conditions the long-term effect that decline has, and it also determines whether you recover from it or not. Um, And there are a lot of moments in Roman history where really bad stuff happens and the empire comes back because you do have good leadership and you have leadership that's able to rally people around a particular cause and they understand the tools that will make people feel good about the response they're having to this problem. And they make people feel good about the outcome. Um, and then there are other times where there are crises that are not, they shouldn't be super terrible that become utter disasters because the leadership is so poor and it doesn't focus on coming together to solve a problem. It instead focuses on blaming other people and dividing. Um, I mean, the best example of that, and we'll, I'm, this is jumping way far ahead, so I apologize for that. But the Battle of Manzikert in 1091 and 1071, when the Byzantines lose their lose an army and the emperor is captured by the Seljuk Turks, the Seljuks actually don't want to take over all of Central Asia Minor at that moment. Um, but the Byzantines fall into basically almost a 10-year-long civil conflict where they kind of allow the Seljuks to walk in. And so the, the moment of losing your army and having your emperor captured, that is not a good thing, right? That is objectively something that puts you in a, a spiral of decline. But the Seljuks were willing to give them back the emperor and agree to a pretty mild peace term that wouldn't have changed much of anything along that frontier. And the Byzantines instead turn that down and fall into a really destructive civil conflict that lasts for much of a decade and the results are much more catastrophic than if they'd come together and just said, 
yeah, okay, that was bad. We accept the consequences of what we did. Let's come together to rebuild and maybe reverse this peace treaty to the degree that we can. Can, can I say, I almost, I honestly almost thought for a second when Cam posed his question to you, I thought you were honestly going to say something like, well, if I have an issue, if I'm the leader and I have a problem, and I can't, for whatever reason, because of my maybe my lack of leadership skills, if I can't really bring everybody together to make the, the best choice or to, to we're all pulling on the same oar, I really thought you were going to say something like, as long as I can control the narrative, I, I can control people's expectations. Oh, it's not that bad. Or, or we actually have taken care of that because it's something far on the border. You're not going to know. You live in Rome or whatever. Uh, because, again, in your book, you do, you do kind of weave in being able to control the narrative is an important thing as well, especially if you're not very good at being a leader. <laughs> as long as you have your pundits out there, sometimes that's half the battle right there. There are moments where that happens, but you can watch mm. it fall apart. That's true. Um, I mean, I, I think a great moment of that is well, a couple moments in the third century give you really good examples of that. So Alexander mm-hmm. Severus, the narrative is, you know, the, the emperor came before him as Elagabalus, who's notorious mm-hmm. for doing all sorts of really elaborately crazy things. Um, some of which he actually did, many of which I don't think he did. But, you know, Alexander Severus is the, the, the calm, um, stable person, the person who mm-hmm. takes you know, the rock God in the chariot off of his coins and puts Mars back on it. Um, And it's a very deliberate public relations uh, approach to make Alexander Severus this totally calm, you know, cipher for whatever you think an ember should do. This is what he does. Um, And you see in Cassius Dio, who's writing, he finishes his great history of Rome from, you know, the beginning to contemporary days, finishes it in the 220s under Alexander Severus. And what Dio, the best he can say about Alexander Severus is we're barely holding it together. <laughs> and, you know, and I think Alexander Severus is there long enough. He's there for 15 right. years. And, right. um, you know, parenthetically, 15 years, there's a lot of emperors who don't make it to like two years. There's sure. also a lot who die around 15 years because that's when you get really sick of an emperor. Um, <laughs> and Alexander Severus gets to 15 years and they're really sick of him. Um, right. And that narrative just is threadbare at that point. You know, people are just yeah. tired. I mean, they don't remember Elagabalus, and they're really just tired of this story of, ah, it's all good, right? Like, yeah. it's all good. The Persians <laughs> invaded, but it's all good. The Germans yeah. invaded, but it's all good. Mm, and, right. you know, they're tired of it. And he ends up mm. getting killed because of that. Um, and so I think you can control the narrative for a little while, mm-hmm. but you can't control the narrative for decades. Um, mm. And the people who try and don't have anything substantial to really offer Mm. They don't make it. Mm. Um, so narrative the truth spin, will out. Spin yeah. PR will only get you so far. You have to actually. It buys you time. Yeah, yeah. It might buy you yeah. fifteen years, which I guess is okay. Do you know, but <laughs> do, do you know the old story about the three envelopes? No. Uh, I tell this one all the time. I can't remember where I first heard of it. It was thirty years ago. Um, story is that a CEO or a president, very different versions, takes over. Um, from the, his predecessor. We'll go with the CEO version. And he has a meeting with his predecessor uh, who's on his way out. And at the end of the, the transition meeting, the, old, the outgoing CEO says, oh, by the way, if you find yourself in a really tough situation, look, at the, look in the bottom drawer, the bottom of the bottom drawer, there are three envelopes marked one, two, and three. Pull them out, read them in order, and you'll be right. He goes, oh, okay, thanks very much. 
So he's, he's about a month or so into the job, the new CEO, and things aren't going well. Business is tanking, uh, you know, sales are down, profits are down. He's in his office late one night, half bottle of scotch gone, and uh, he's rummaging around <laughs> looking for something, and he finds the three envelopes. So he pulls out the first envelope, opens it up, and it says, if things aren't going well, blame your predecessor. So he gets up and does a press conference the next morning saying, look, uh, I know things aren't going very well, but um, problems that I inherited were worse than I thought they were. When we took this job, we didn't really realize how bad the forecasts were, etc. But now we really, we've been at the job for a while. We know what's going on. We're going to turn things around. Don't worry about it. It's all going to be good. And he buys himself some more time. Six months goes past. Things uh, aren't getting any better. Late night, another bottle of scotch, finds a second envelope. It says, if things still haven't improved, get rid of all of your management and uh, replace them and say that, you know, this is the new. So he does that. Next day, press release, sacks everybody, sacks his cabinet, sacks his board. Um, okay, uh, you know, had a, had a lot of dead wood, had to need to get rid of. Getting rid of the dead wood, it's all going to be good from now. Six months later, things haven't improved. Late night, bottle of scotch, third envelope. He opens it up. It says, prepare three envelopes. <laughs> so I think that's <laughs> – and you kind of see yeah, this play out, right, in politics and business yeah. all the time, right? So eventually you, you can buy yourself some time by putting some spin on it, but eventually you've got to turn things around. Um, before we move on too What's far, that? I want to I ask you about the role of the Praetorian Guard. Because what mm-hmm. we've seen so far in our series is that, you know, these guys end up uh, really becoming a, a major power base in Rome. Uh, they, they may have been involved in, well, you've got, you know, Sianus, uh, uh, you've, you, you've got the, the, the murder of Tiberius, perhaps, if he wasn't quite dead. I'm not dead yet. Um, you know, you've got Caligula. You've got, uh, well, Claudius manages to do some sort of a deal with them. Um, and then, you know, you've got Nero and all of his problems. Uh, and, and this goes on. Obviously, the Praetorian Guard just decide that they are the people that can make or break emperors. What happened there? Was that? Do you think that was inevitable? It's basically like military coups happening over and over and over again. It kind of reminds me of Myanmar or or Iraq or uh, you know any number of countries these days. So there's actually there's a couple of really interesting moments, um, and I'll, I'll move us just a little bit forward. Um, so the murder of Domitian and then the murder of uh, Commodus. So the next two times you have the Praetorian Guard kind of intervening in this, and with uh, Domitian. The interesting thing is the murder is done without the Praetorian Guard knowing, and they are really pissed because mm-hmm. they really liked Domitian. And the soldiers really liked Domitian. This is how Trajan sort of organizes the shadow coup, is the soldiers really liked him. And so there's actually a Praetorian riot against Nerva um, because they know Nerva was involved in this. I mean, there's the story is Nerva didn't know, ever they just found him. Right? Of course, Nerva knew about it. Nerva organized it. Mm-hmm. And so the, the murder... Um, is something that the Praetorians hold against Nerva because they really liked Domitian and they, they really felt like their failure to protect Domitian um, was something that needed to be avenged. Uh, with Commodus, it's interesting because Commodus is killed um, 
I just actually, I'm doing a, a thing, a talk about Commodus's murder in a month at the Getty. And it's really interesting when you look at this, because the stories about, the story we have about how Commodus was killed is actually sort of three layers of different emperors blaming people for the death of Commodus so that they can own the legacy of Commodus. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things, the Praetorian Guards are deeply involved in this. And one of the things that you see with, um, so Commodus is murdered on New Year's Eve of 192. And the story that we have makes no sense. It's that he's poisoned by uh, his his mistress and the head of the Praetorian Guard and the Chamberlain, uh, the head of the, the Imperial household. Um, and they did this because they saw him write a note with their names on it and they thought that meant he was going to kill them. So they get poison where they get the poison, you know, in the afternoon on New Year's Eve, it isn't said they poison him. He, uh, is so robust, right? Because he's a gladiator and he trains really hard that the poison doesn't kill him. So somehow they find a wrestler who then comes in and strangles him to death. And of course, you know, then they find Pertinax who knew nothing about it. Uh, and they tell Pertinax to go to the Praetorian guards and get himself acclaimed emperor. Well, the Praetorian commander um, is a guy named Laetus, and after Pertinax falls for predictable reasons, the Praetorians are really angry about this, um, and Didius Julianus, who's Pertinax's successor, has to throw Laetus to the Praetorian guards to basically calm them. So on some level, what has happened between the Julio-Claudians and this period that is like the bookends of the Antonine era is the Praetorian guards get super invested in the emperors that they're protecting. Not, I mean, Pertinax, but the emperors who are legitimate emperors who they're protecting. And they get really, really angry if those emperors are killed to the point where you almost can't govern if you're one of the people who are responsible for this. Wow. Uh, And so there's, I think, an interesting shift in what the Praetorians mean between the Julio-Claudians and then, you know, a century later, where somehow, and I don't really know how, but somehow these guys actually become the professionals they're supposed to be. Uh, and they take real significant pride in their job of protecting emperors. Um, and, you know, and part of that might be that because nine, between 96 and 192, no emperors are killed. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's part of why they, they have this pride. But, um, but something very different happens. And I don't know if it's Vespasian that did it. Uh, but, you know, in the Flavian period, this shifts. And the Julio-Claudians can't manage their Praetorians very well. The mm. Flavians do, and the Antonines definitely do. Um, mm. And so it's an interesting thing. Well, um, as you can see behind me, um, I actually spent quite a few years uh, since we last spoke. I, I made a documentary on early Christianity called Marketing the Messiah. You can see it on Amazon Prime. Um, and so the rise of Christianity is, you know, probably somebody asked me, I got an interview on another history podcast a week or two ago, and I was asked, you know, if I had to pick one one subject or one period, the rise of Christianity is probably my favorite subject. It's the thing I've studied the most over 30-odd years because I find it fascinating and always have done since I was um, quite young. So obviously, uh, as everyone probably knows who's listening to this, from 238 to 280, there were... 50 or 60 uh, claimants. It was a emperor claimants. It was a crazy period. The frontier defenses collapsed. Um, and you had guys like Trajan Decius, Decius, uh, for a while there, who he issues a, a law uh, declaring that every citizen needed to sacrifice to the imperial gods. 
Christians at the time obviously wouldn't have liked that. Um, I, I think you refer to it as a persecution. Is it a persecution, though? Uh, I think with with uh, with Dishes, it's an accidental persecution. He didn't, I think, think through that law. Um, mm. I don't think he thought through a lot of what he was doing as emperor, but I don't think he understood what that would mean for Christians. Um, what he really believed is that Rome had, uh, you know, Rome was suffering military reverses and other sorts of reverses because Rome had fallen into this really serious kind of moral and ethical and, and material decline. And the way to fix that was to really go back to what made Rome great in the past. And mm-hmm. part of what he saw as a decline was, well, Romans just aren't pious. as They're not pious like they were before. So mm-hmm. we'll issue a law and it will make everybody come and, and do their sacrifices and I, I don't think for a minute he actually thought, wait, there's, you know, a few couple million people who can't do this. Um, and what I'm doing is I'm actually turning the infrastructure of the state against these two million or so people. Uh, and then um, once that takes effect and he starts seeing the effects of it, then I think it, it becomes a I don't think he understood where it would go, but I think he sticks with it, even though um, it has caused problems. I think the one where it's he, where the emperor knew exactly what he was doing is Valerian. Um, there's no way that an emperor in 256, after what Decius had done, could claim ignorance about what a law mandating sacrifice would actually do. But I think with Decius, he didn't quite, I mean, he should have known, but I don't think he thought through exactly what a law that um, would use, in essence, kind of census rolls to... Uh, to force a particular religious behavior on Romans, what that would actually mean. And I think another part of that that we have to always keep in mind is the constitutuensin iniana and the extension of citizenship to everybody in the empire meant that now, Mm. unlike, say, in the past, if like Hadrian had issued a law like this, it would have covered Roman citizens, but it wouldn't have been able to catch everybody in all of the empire because their citizenship status is somewhat different. So their legal status is somewhat different and the records aren't really there to catch them all. But when Decius does it, everyone in the empire is a Roman citizen. And so this is something where all of a sudden this law becomes really far reaching in a way that I don't think he imagined. I like the way you mentioned Valerian who um, uh, gets serious about making the Christian sacrifice or, or, perish in 257 and i'm always fascinated by how the christian apologists at the time and and afterwards like to spin this like cyprian at the time wrote god is testing our faith uh like the we're not worthy uh kind of uh response to this and you know, I, I talk about this in my documentary with the Jews, uh, you know, pre-Jesus, uh, um, had been a rough 800 years for the Jews. They kept saying, our God is all-powerful, our God's going to make us rulers of the world, and yet they keep getting their asses kicked by invader after invader after invader after invader after invader. After invader. And they're like, well, well, we're obviously just not being good enough Jews. We're not, we're not <laughs> pious enough. We're not this. We're not that. The Christians come along and say, well, that's because you're doing it wrong. We're gonna, we're gonna do Judaism right. We've got this new idea, and then they get themselves beaten up for centuries, and they have the same sort of response that the Jews did. Well, obviously, God's testing us. You know, we're not doing it right, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
I mean, a pretty puny God if he's supposed to be all powerful and you're his chosen people and you keep getting persecuted or occupied or whatever. It, it, it always fascinates me how the religions survived and managed to maintain adherence when on one hand they're claiming that it's an all-powerful God and we're the chosen people and yet things don't work out for them for century after century after century. But um, so Valerian gets taken prisoner by the Persians. His son Gallienus sort of ends the Christian persecution for a while. Then we have Aurelian who tries to unify the emperor. Then Diocletian from, uh, from he's from Croatia. Is that right? Diocletian was from yeah, Croatia. Yeah. <clears throat> and takes the throne in 284, appoints Maximian to be his partner. By the way, um, we have another show that we do on the Renaissance and um, in our in our style, before we could start talking about the Renaissance, we needed to talk about the Dark Ages, and before we could talk about the Dark Ages, we needed to talk about the the, the fall of Rome. So we did hours and hours and hours and hours on this uh, a couple of years ago. Um, but uh, so then, and then they, they take Constantius and, and Galerius as their junior partners. You have the Augustus and the Caesar and the Tetrarchy and all this kind of stuff, which I'm sure people are familiar with. The persecutions of Diocletian then, so um, my recollection is that his his wife Prisca uh, was supposedly a Christian, his daughter Valeria was supposedly a Christian, and yet he is famous for this persecution. But my recollection from when we talked about this in our earlier series was the genesis of this from his perspective was, again, that Christians were refusing to sacrifice. They were refusing to participate in the ordained sacrifices for the good of the empire, you know, so they could end famines, win battles, that kind of stuff. Is is there more to the story than that? Or was that his justification for uh, something that was something else that was going on? I think that actually it's it's interesting to think of the career of Diocletian in kind of, again, two phases. So, I mean, as you hinted at, Diocletian takes power in 284 and the empire isn't a mess, but it has not had a stable governing structure. There's been just lots and lots and lots of um, political turmoil where Gallienus is around for a long time, but Gallienus doesn't control all of the empire for a long time. And uh, there has been basically more emperor, more people claiming imperial title than there have been years between 235 and 284. And so what Diocletian really sets to work to do is, is fix all kinds of aspects of imperial life. Um, you know, the, the empire was not adequately addressing the needs of its citizens. And so he creates new administrative structures so that citizens are in smaller provinces they have more ability to interact with imperial officials. He reforms the tax structure so that it's more dynamic, so that you know land that has been vacant is now going to be taxed as vacant land, not as farmland, because someone farmed it 50 years ago. Um, and he addresses all sorts of other infrastructure and, and um, political problems um, with you know everything even into the coinage. Uh, and he spends the first 10 to 15 years doing that, basically building a new imperial structure. And then the really horrible stuff that Diocletian is known for happens at the end. Um, the Christian persecution, the Manichaean persecution, the maximum price edict where he sets 
prices for every single thing that you can imagine buying in the empire. And so I think the way to maybe imagine this, um, and this is kind of an example that I use with my students, is if you think of um, Vladimir Putin, you know, the very beginning of Vladimir Putin's term, there's all kinds of problems in Russia that he has to fix. And he fixes them. I mean, he really is a force that improves conditions in Russia. But then what do you do? You know, you fix the problems you've got. What do you do? You can step away. Um, and we, we know leaders do that. I mean, Mandela is a great example of a leader who does that. You address the problems that you inherit. You're there Sola. for a time. You walk away. Sola did Sola. That. Well, he's Sola. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, but then there's people who feel like they need to stay there. And I think Diocletian, uh, the second phase, he's looking at these issues as I fixed all of these things. And look at these horrible people who are just persisting and doing dumb things. You know, I reform the currency. I, you know, create a tri-metallic system where everything is tracked and you can bring a pile of bronze coins. You know exactly how much gold you can buy for it, just like Augustus had set up. And that broke in the third century. I fixed it. And now look at these crazy people who are not listening. They're doing their own thing. And I fixed the conditions in the empire. And look at these crazy people who are worshiping other gods. And, you know, they're threatening to bring this all down. And so the last phase of Diocletian's um, time is, I think, a kind of retrenchment to fix preemptively things that will undermine the conditions that he has brought about. And so I think the Christian persecution has to be seen as uh, the result of an emperor who's there too long and has become kind of defensive of his legacy and isn't really thinking about what is... Um, is really thinking about the conditions that are. He's worried about conditions that may be, and he's trying to preempt them by using the really robust resources in this state that he's reformed in a fashion that Romans have never seen. Um, I think when we think of this state that Diocletian built, we have to understand that this is a state that in a lot of its capacities is kind of on the level of an early modern European nation. Um, no one in... Well, no one in the Europe or Mediterranean region will mint more coins per year than Diocletian's state, um, really until the British around 1800. Um, the legal system, the administrative system, the structures that you have in Diocletian's state are, you know, on the level of kind of an 18th or early 19th century European country. So it's a really powerful state. And when he turns it against Christians, this is a really powerful persecution. Um, he has resources that, frankly, didn't exist to anyone else in the ancient world before him. But I guess my question, though, is, was it a reasonable position for him to take that the Christians were a toxic force? They were, they were trying to hurt the empire. I mean, I know it goes, it, Lucian was around 100 years earlier, but even back then he wrote... Christians are these poor wretches who have convinced themselves first and foremost that they're going to be immortal and live for all time, in consequence of which they despise death and even willingly give themselves into custody. It had sort of, in his view, and I think the view of many others uh, uh, during these persecutions, was it was kind of a death cult. They, they wanted to die. They wanted to be tortured because some of them did. Uh, uh, you know, there was a death cult aspect to it where they saw that as something noble to do. It was basically they were the equivalent of suicide bombers, right? They were willing to be tortured and die for their beliefs and for their cause. And, you know, we, we kind of see in some of the um, 
literature from the time, including Eusebius, but and then also things like um, the Passion of Saint Victor, uh, where you have these the where governors during these times and and uh, military leaders who are given the job of enforcing that the Christian sacrifice are saying to them, look, just burn the meat, like just burn it and drop it. I mean, no one cares really what you believe. I mean, Rome famously sort of for centuries had allowed all sorts of uh, religions from the East, from the West. You know, there was this uh, syncretization of religions and mystery cults. And I, I, I tend to think that, at least Paul's version of Christianity started off as a mystery cult. It was sort of a syncretization of sort of uh, agrarian cults and uh, and uh, Eastern cults and a bit of Judaism. You know, the um, uh, eat, I eat this this bread as the body and I drink the wine as the blood sounds very much like that was taken from agrarian cults of Dionysus or Isis, etc., where they were actually bread and wine deities, and you know it made sense to eat the grain, drink the wine. It's the body and and uh, blood of the grain deity. Um, so you have you, you have these uh, Christians that are being begged often by the officials to just just do it, just show respect to the traditional gods. We don't care really what you believe in private, and they would refuse to do it. They were, you know, I've. Um, you know, I think in the Passion of Saint Victor and other stories like this, he, uh, he I actually I grabbed some notes from the last time I did it. Victor was a soldier in the Roman army of Marseille when he was hailed before the prefects Asterius and Eutychius, who sent him to the Emperor Maximian for his exhortations to Christians to be firm in their faith in the face of an impending visit by the Emperor. Victor was first taken before the military prefects, who begged him to reconsider his position. So Maximian, after ordering a priest to bring an altar of Jupiter, turned to Victor and said, just offer a few grains of incense, placate Jupiter and be our friend. Victor's answer was to dash the altar to the ground from the hands of the priest and place his foot triumphantly upon it. He was dragged through the streets, racked, imprisoned. Uh, He converted three guards while in prison, supposedly. (laughs) He was again tortured after the guards were beheaded when it was discovered he'd converted them to Christianity. When he refused to offer incense to Jupiter, he was crushed in a millstone and beheaded. But, you know, it's like, you know, there was this this group of Christians anyway that wanted to be tortured, that wanted to be killed. They wanted to be martyred for somebody trying to run a stable empire. When you've got a group of people running around wanting to die for the cause, that's a tough problem. We, we think of it today as a persecution, but it must have been if, I mean, I, I've read various estimates, uh, you know, this stage around the 280s, but the one that I think is probably most realistic is about 10% of the empire at that stage may have been Christian. It's a hell of a lot of right. people. They're not sacrificing to the traditional gods. They're not doing what most Romans believe is necessary, has always been necessary. For a thousand years, they've been sacrificing to the gods to avoid famines, for victory in battles, for prosperity and success. And all of a sudden, you've got 10% of the population going, screw you, we're not going to do that. And 
then you have plagues and famines and military defeats happen. And, you know, so you're going to point the finger, much like Christians themselves did during the Middle Ages when there were famines and plagues and they would blame the Jews and there'd be, uh, you know, uh, uh, pogroms against the Jews over and over and over again. Same sort of thinking, right? So I guess the question I'm asking is, Diocletian, it was a tough job. Like, what else do you do when you've got these people that are deliberately troublemakers? Yeah, I think what's interesting is, um, so the life of Antony uh, gives a really important scene in this because it talks about, this is, you know, the first monk, the ascetic in, uh, in Egypt, and it talks about Antony going into a trial during the Great Persecution. And, tra- and he stands up and basically says, I'm a Christian, take me. And the judge says, but you're not important enough. You go away. We don't care. Because what Diocletian and what the Tetrarchs are doing is they're targeting church property and they're targeting church leadership. And so they don't want to kill six million people. What they want to do is get, you know, the property because the church has become in the period between Gallienus's suspension of the persecution and the beginning of the great persecution, the church has become very wealthy. I mean, Diocletian could see it out the window of the palace in Nicomedia. There's a massive church that was built. Um, there's a lot of property there, and then there's a leadership structure that's frankly doing a good job because there are a lot of people who are coming into this religion. And so the great persecution is targeted against the um, institutional structures that made the church successful. And I think what Diocletian is imagining is if you take out those structures, then it's going to kind of wither away. Um, and I think you're right that Diocletian is concerned about the um, – effect that people not worshiping will have. But the story that I think Lactantius gives us is quite interesting, that what actually keyed Diocletian into this was a couple things. I mean, the first is Galerius is pushing him again and again and again, like target the Christians, target the Christians. Diocletian is not really interested in it until he's trying to perform a sacrifice or get, mm-hmm. um, get auspices taken or something in the palace in Nicomedia. And there's a Christian guard who's in there who's crossing himself or something. And mm-hmm. the, uh, the ceremony doesn't actually work. And this mm-hmm. is where Galerius is able to say, look, you got to do this because it's undermining your ability to actually have this empire function like it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, broadly speaking, I don't know that this was on Diocletian's radar until people put it on his radar. I don't know that he cared too much. But once he started caring about it, he was the type of person who really dug in. Um, but the strategy that he pursued was to go after certain Christians. And if you're a regular Christian, he's not interested in you. This is very mm-hmm. unlike Valerian or Decius, who were going after pretty much anybody who's on the census rolls who didn't sacrifice. Um, mm-hmm. I think Diocletian probably had learned that that's, first of all, stupid, and second of all, not tenable. Uh, mm-hmm. And so went after leadership and property so that you could kind of cut the head off of this um, organization, and then hopefully it would collapse. But that's also, I think, why Constantine takes the approach he does when he reverses all of this. And he gives money to the churches and gives the property back. And he basically restates or reinstates that institutional structure. Um, Because Diocletian was able to take the property away. He wasn't able to decapitate the leadership. The leadership, of course, you know, you put one bishop in prison, another one comes up. You put that guy in prison, another one comes up. Um, And I don't think he appreciated that would be what would come out of this. And I think it was incredibly frustrating to him to go after an organization and basically just kind of 
have that organization um, be so robust that it could perpetuate itself, even when you're taking out its most talented and influential people again and again and again. So I'm, I'm just trying to understand what you're suggesting his motivation was here. So it's, it's n- not necessarily trying to take the wealth that the church had accrued. It's trying to shut down the religion by taking out the leadership and he wants to shut it down because you genu- you agree that he genuinely thinks that uh, is convinced by Galerius over time that it's a uh, and by you know the master Harris specs when the guy was crossing himself and the Harrispuses didn't work and he said well it's because of that Christian guy there who's ruining everything. It was a genuine uh, concern that the Christians were a, a, a damaging influence to the empire. They were going to cause problems. Yeah. And I think that it's important to understand um, what I imagine Diocletian's psyche to be in this moment. You know, I think that Diocletian at the last phases of his career before he retires is really looking at what he's built and he's worried it's going to come apart again. Yeah. Uh, and so when he sees, because it's not just Christians, it's Manichees too. When he sees yeah. people doing things that are taking away from the old gods, I think what he's looking at is um, something that will eventually erode away all of the gains that he spent the last 15 years making. And yeah. he's really ups- he's really concerned about that. And yeah. so I think that's why the maximum price edict, the Manichae edict, the persecution of the Christians all kind of go together because this is somebody who really feels like he knows the structures that will make the empire better, the religious yeah. structures, political structures, economic structures. And he really feels like the people that he's targeting in these last years of his regime are the people who can threaten to undermine those things. Yeah. Not maybe so much in the moment, because things are actually going reasonably well for the Roman Empire in you know the early years of the 300s. Um, but in the long term, I think he's looking to kind of prevent the decline that he's reversed. And that's why these groups get caught up in, you know, in, and attract his attention. Uh, because he really does feel like in the long term, these are going to have deleterious and very detrimental consequences for Rome. And he can kind of see them off before those consequences are felt. The thing that I think is hard for most of us to appreciate, you know, whatever, 2,000 years later, is, and this is what I try and pull out of my documentary, is, um, you know, Christianity, Paul's version of, of Christianity, right, which is Christianity for, for all intents and purposes, was, was based on the idea that the world was going to come to an end in Paul's lifetime. Paul was convinced mm-hmm. when you go read the epistles that any day now, it's all coming to an end. So don't 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 bother getting married if you're not already married. Don't worry about this, that, and the other. It's all coming to a head, and just uh, get ready, <laughs> get ready because the yeah. end is nigh. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then uh, uh, Paul dies, and then when you read uh, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John in chronological order, you see the. The continuation of this idea is still there because they're essentially Pauline um, communities that are writing these documents that the end of times is they're, – they're all convinced it's basically – well, at least with Matthew, uh, Mark, Matthew and Luke, 
they're pretty convinced that the end is going to happen within their lifetimes. This wasn't designed to be a religion that was going to be around for 2,000 years. This was a... It was a apocalyptic death cult, right? They really believed that the end of the world was going to happen and they needed to get ready for it. The, it's like the ones today that believe that the aliens are going to come down and there's going to be the great reckoning and all this kind of stuff. And then it kept not happening and it kept not happening and they kept going, oh, shit, what do we do? And by the time you get to the Gospel of John, it starts to get... He's like, well, listen, da, 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 look, we, we, look, it's going to happen, but we don't know when it's going to... Stop, stop asking me when it's going to happen. It doesn't matter when it's going to happen. What matters is that it, it, it will happen and you need to make sure that when it happens you're going to you know be on the right side and it's you're going to be good think more about how you be a good uh christian right now rather than when it's going to happen mm-hmm. but then we see a perpetuation of this going on but you know you think about a community of people in rome who are convinced as lucian wrote that the the end is nigh and Jesus is going to come back at any moment now and all of this doesn't matter, which was, as I point out in the documentary, very attractive, must have been very attractive to the poor because the poor, their lives were shitty and had always been shitty and now and there, there was never any, uh, like Judaism and the traditional Greco-Roman religions didn't really offer anything much for an afterlife and unless you were a great hero or a great king and you got to the fields of Elysium and stuff like that. For most people, it was like, eh, I don't know, man, eh, something happens. We what don't you know. Do? Man, you know <laughs> maybe, you know, we, we don't really know. We don't have any answers. They were more honest about it, right? Right. But then Christianity comes along and goes, no, 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 just add this guy to your, initially, you know, I think this is how it played out. And uh, it was like, just add this guy to the pantheon of gods. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you die, boom, paradise. You know, paradise for eternity, which must have sounded incredibly alluring with really no downside in the early generations of Christians. Increasingly over time, then it became more monotheistic. But um, you think about an empire with 10% of people going, well, the world's coming to an end tomorrow, so it doesn't really matter. Um, So I don't care what you say. I'm not going to sacrifice to your gods. You know, famine, plague not my problem because I'm going to stick to my uh, religion and that means I'm going to have eternity in paradise. You know, I've got these other, I've got like tons of these stories out of Eusebius um, of, again, guys literally begging to be killed because they uh, want to be martyred and they want to go to paradise and they want to emulate the death of Jesus and, and Peter and Paul as they imagine them as well. It's just, I, I really think Diocletian gets a... Um, uh, a bad rap for all this kind of stuff. I really just think it was an incredible... Like, you imagine if 10% of the United States today just was like, you know what, this is all bullshit, it's all going... We're, the, the world's coming to an end tomorrow, so doesn't matter. Uh, we're not going to do the things... We're not going to pay our taxes, we're not going to blah, 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 blah. I mean, you probably have 10% of your population that believe that. <laughs> we might, yeah. They're probably the ones that storm <laughs> the capital, close. right? Um, I don't know. I just think it's. Uh, I think there's such a big story here of what a, the bigger the, this Christian community became, a, you know, such a massive administrative problem it must have been. And then, of course, Constantine comes along and figures out, okay, well, fighting them isn't going to work. We need to figure out 
how to integrate them, how to work, how to make them productive members of society um, and accommodate their particular beliefs because we can't piss off 10% of the population. Um, you know, you, I, you mentioned in the book that he converted to Christianity. I don't really swallow it. I mean, I, I, from... We don't really have a good biography on Constantine, but he just—he seems to have just integrated it into the pantheon. He was still the Pontifex Maximus, and we're gonna—we're gonna make this sort of uh, an official religion to a higher degree than it had already been in earlier stages. And you know, he still is putting Mars on his coins. He's still worshiping Sol Invictus publicly. Um, you know, do you have any reason to believe that he actually converted like we think of what converting to Christianity means? Or was he just integrating Christianity and making himself the head of it because he was the head of all religions? I think that the big question with Constantine is what is the definition of Christianity we're using? Um, Because who is going to tell Constantine that what he's doing is not Christian? Um, after he stops the persecutions, after he claims he converted, I don't know that, I don't think that Constantine would have had practices that would have corresponded to what say John Chrysostom said was Christian 70 years later. Um, I think that, um, he certainly wouldn't have beliefs that we would say, well, yeah, that's like definitely straight away Christian. Um, but I also think it's important to understand that there's not a bishop alive who's going to tell Constantine that what you're doing isn't Christian, <laughs> right? If you want to do it, then and you think you're a Christian, then yes, you do boss. it, and and that's totally fine. Um, no, but, and I think that's where it gets. But he but he had he had not, to deal with the Arians and the Nicaeans, right? He had this whole thing well, but that the, he had to the, deal with. But the Arians actually, um, they pretend to go along with what he decides at Nicaea. Um, And Constantine, if you watch, he drifts actually closer to Eusebius of Nicomedia, who signed on. I mean, Eusebius of Nicomedia is the most powerful in the context of Arian bishops of the fourth century. He's the most powerful of them. But he signed the Council of Nicaea, and he worked with Constantine, and he was in communion with Constantine. Um, And Constantine even tried to bring Arius back into communion. And had him in Constantinople, and he dies before he's able to actually um, accept he communion again. He, well, he exploded in a latrine, is the story we have. <laughs> <laughs> and you have a source who says in the, in the 5th century, you could still go vi- visit the latrine where Arius exploded <laughs> into it. Road trip. Um, so, you know, I think, I think he had a, you know, well, he had some very, what they would call in Game of Thrones, um, the bloody flux. um, but i I think with i think with constantine what we i think legitimately what we what happened at at the battle of milvian bridge and what happened in that campaign was inexplicable no one could explain why maxentius did what he did um because maxentius had literally i mean it's like a video game like if you've won the video game two times before by following one strategy Why in, the, why in the world would you do the exact opposite? And he'd already beaten Severus and he'd already beaten back Galerius by basically fortifying Rome, building up the defenses there, not marching out of the city and fighting an open battle. And mm-hmm. he not only fights an open battle, he crosses the river 
Mm. It makes no, this isn't, this isn't like Joe, nobody commander. This is somebody who not only has won battles before, but he's Mm -hmm. won that exact battle before twice before. So it made no sense to anybody. And if Constantine did have a vision and there's lots of things that said before he went on campaign, he had some sort of a vision that becomes something that's interpreted as Christian. Um, After what happened at Milvian bridge, you're going to go all in on that. But what that means in terms of what it means to be a Christian, I don't think anyone is giving Constantine any kind of feedback saying like, well, what you want to do, what Christianity is to you is not right. Um, Because I think he's too important and too scary for any Christian bishop to really want to do that kind of thing. And it's only under his sons that you see them really kind of taking those kinds of aggressive steps about well, you're emperor, but you're not doing the appropriate Christian thing. Constantine, I think, gets a pass. But of course, mm. the the vision or the support that he got in the Battle of Milvian Bridge, there wasn't only there was also a pagan version of that story by Nazarius. It wasn't just the Eusebius and Lactantius versions that we're mostly familiar with. Nazarius, who, uh, for people who don't know, he was a, a rhetorician. He delivered a, a, a panegyric in 321 on the anniversary of Constantine's 15th year of rule. And he gave a pagan, pagan version of this. Um, and I think it was uh, supposedly the soldiers had seen uh, Constantius, uh, Constantine's father, in the sky with celestial armies marching in battle array and uh, that they had uh, uh, brought about the miraculous victory. Um, and, uh, you know, the Cairo plays into this in different ways, the which the Christians interpreted as, uh, you know, being uh, the symbol of Christ. But the Cairo, as we've pointed out on our shows over the times, had been around for centuries before this, the Cairo symbol, you know, goes right back to, to ancient Greece. Um, Ptolemy the third had it on his coins, the Cairo symbol in 246 BCE. He had the Cairo on his coins. It was a you know, XP, uh, the first two letters of the word for gold, anointed, virtuous, good, Demosthenes had the phrase good luck emblazoned on his shield in gold letters at the Battle of Chironia in 338 BCE, probably XP, probably the Cairo symbol. So, you know, that could have meant something completely different to Christianity. But, you know, I think the problem with Constantine is that you know, we don't have really good uh, uh, secular biography on him. We've got the biographies of Eusebius and Lactantius, and we've got Chris- all of this Christian stuff that came after him that basically gives us a very Christian version of his story, but eh, I don't buy it. Well, Julian says that he's, I mean, Julian Caesars has Constantine in heaven hanging out with Jesus. Um, and Julian's, of course, a pagan, but he's also a family member. So I think that I think that what we can definitely say is that what Constantine is doing and what he thinks Christianity is is going to be his own version of it. Um, but I think that it's it's very clearly um, 
it's very clearly something that's associated with him very early on by people, by people who are of all kinds of different persuasions. But I think what, what a pagan would say, um, and what Julian actually does basically say, is that Christ is a god, but he's part of a pantheon. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the jump that Constantine would be making is the jump that you described earlier. This idea that, that, well, you know, Jesus was the God that stepped in and did this. It isn't necessarily, I am a Christian, I am not a pagan. That's a process. For most people who convert to Christianity in the fourth century, that's the process. And we actually see this, like in, we can watch in sort of tombs, inscriptions, and other things where you see that, you know, that process starts by acknowledging that Jesus is a God, but you still worship him as you would other gods too. And you continue to worship other gods. And you see preachers like Chrysostom or um, Ambrose or others cracking down and saying, "Okay, if you're really a Christian, you don't go to the you don't go to the cemetery and pray to the lares. You don't continue to offer sacrifices or incense in your house. Like you need to, if you really believe Jesus is a God, Jesus says you must only worship me. That's what you need to do. But there's lots of Christians in the fourth century who never get there, um, who would say they're Christian, but their bishop would say they're not." And uh, mm-hmm. a modern observer would not say that they are. And I think when we think of Constantine, it's perfectly plausible that Const- to, to see that Constantine fits somewhere on that spectrum without imagining that Constantine is Eusebius um, or that Constantine is John Chrysostom or Constantine is the Pope. Um, and I think that's the challenge with, um, you know, with that, that gives us a way to bring together these different views of Constantine. Because if you're a pagan looking at Constantine, what he's doing doesn't look not pagan. Um, There is a way for a pagan to worship Jesus. And so when you see, um, when you as a pagan see the emperor doing the things Constantine is doing, you can understand him in a way that still doesn't look different. But yeah. if you're a Christian, you can also understand him in a way that does. And Constantine's genius is he's able to be the first Christian emperor to Christians, but still be basically a person who fits in the spectrum of tolerable for pagans. Um, and I think this is why he's so complicated, because he's yeah, being right. deliberately ambiguous. He's being sort of two things to two communities, Clever. and they don't make sense in a modern context. Right. Yeah, um, but, when you, but they did when you, make sense in a fourth century context. Yeah, when when you think about him just integrating Jesus as another god into the pagan pantheon of gods, then it, yeah, it's fine. The Christians can see him as a Christian, but really he was just uh, you know a traditionalist. Okay, we're going to absorb it in. Um, but I like the fact that you know, as I explained in the film, the the sort of the dominant um, view of the the Messiah in Judaism was that he would probably be a great military leader that would help his people conquer and kick out the usurpers and the occupiers and all that kind of stuff. Um, Jesus, of course, in his lifetime wasn't that, um, so he was he didn't fit the traditional uh, idea of what a Messiah was going to be didn't bring about this great revolution and renewal. But of course, with Constantine, all of a sudden we see militarized Jesus with an army uh, in the heavens that brings about the deaths of tens of thousands of Romans 
Uh, and so you have this militarized Jesus. who So he finally does, under Constantine, fulfill the Jewish prophecy of uh. the Messiah not supposed to be a dead messiah. He's supposed to be, a, a, you know... A, <laughs> he's a little late. He's supposed to be, a, 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 yeah, a little late and a little dead. He's supposed to be a king <laughs> like David, a great military uh, leader. But with Constantine, you get that. You have this uh, general, general Jesus, as I like to call him, who comes in with his armies and kills tens of thousands of Romans Um some of whom were probably Christians. Uh, if 10% of the empire were Christian, probably 10% of Maxentius's army were Christians. And then, of course, Constantine does the ultimate Christian move and carries Maxentius's head through Rome on a spike and sure. um, has his family entirely killed, including his wife and youngest son. So it's, as you say... Old not, Testament. Well, it's not just Old Testament, but then... It's Middle Ages Christianity too. Like we're just, you know, we, we, yeah. can, we can do anything really and call it Christianity. The first thing that Constantine does though after he uh, uh, consolidates his power is disband the Praetorian Guard. Um, smart yeah. move? Uh, given the situation in Rome, it's a very smart move because Maxentius has, I mean, this is what made Maxentius. Uh, Maxentius is the son of Maximian who had retired um, and the Praetorian Guard was very loyal to him. And Constantine, uh, frankly, I think didn't didn't want to deal with that, but also was really worried about the uh, ability to maintain control of this territory if he went to the east, um, which he was planning, I think, ultimately to do, with a Praetorian Guard that was basically the only force that was supposed to be armed in the city of Rome. Um, I think that in a way it's a... Septimius Severus does something similar, where the, Itali- the Praetorian Guard up until Septimius Severus is supposed to be entirely Italian, and Severus actually disbands it and brings new people in. I think Constantine takes it one step further. But, you know, with Constantine, we're only a little more than 120 years after Septimius Severus. So we're, we're at a point where um, an acknowledgement that this is an institution that really probably cannot be reformed to function as it needs to in an empire no longer centered on the city of Rome, where the emperor is seldom in the city of Rome, um, the Praetorian Guard then just becomes a problem. It doesn't actually serve a function. Uh, So I think Constantine actually is making a really good decision in getting rid of the Praetorians, um, you know, in the 310s, because short term, it's going to be a problem for him. These are people who were loyal to Maxentius. Long term, there's no reason for them. Um, because you're seldom in the city. So you don't need a military force that's protecting you um, when you're planning to be all over the place, but not really in Rome all that much. And I think they'd learn to move around, to be seen, to see, uh, to check out parts of the empire by yourself. I think that went back to Hadrian, if, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. But yeah, it's a very big empire. You got to be mobile, and uh, it's good to be seen by the people. You know, again, to show that you care and that you're touring your empire to you know to see how things are going to help yourself and to help them as well yeah it's uh it's i think one of the functions of diocletian's reform was to basically create structures like substructures of the empire where mm-hmm. you had regional more or less capitals um so the northwest was centered on the city of trier in germany um the central part of the empire was centered really on milan because it was closer to the frontiers 
Um, and then for Galerius, his activities were centered in, in Thessaloniki. Um, and then Diocletian, as we said, was in Nicomedia. Um, and mm. what you see there is already an, an, an idea that government needs to be more responsive. And that means you can't have it centered in Rome. You need to have it sort of spread out in such a way that all of your citizens across the empire can interact. Um, Rome remained important, but to have a really powerful and well-trained military force that's just sitting there um, when the emperor is not sitting there is a danger, I think, that Constantine understood. And I don't think he wanted to run the risk of these, you know, just leaving these guys there um, to potentially make trouble when they're not really serving a purpose for him. Right. And I'm sure they cost a lot as well. <laughs> to boot. Yeah. And I think, isn't the Lateran yeah. Basilica on their barracks? Isn't that right? <laughs> I don't know. Sounds right. Well, maybe. Sounds right. <laughs> he makes that's, use of the space in, in right. you know, an urban renewal effort. So. Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to talk about, you know, moving the, um, the seat of the empire, obviously, to Constantinople, Byzantium. You know, we... I guess in the minds of a lot of people, that's probably one of the um, major shifts in the, the, the eventual division of the empire into the, the Greek and the Latin. Um, and I also then want to talk about the role of Theodosius um, in, you know, the 380s when Christianity finally becomes the only allowable uh, religion and or philosophy in the empire the this this um condemnation and, and banning and elimination of all of the traditional religions all of the schools of philosophy the stoics and the epicureans and everything is gone the traditional way of being roman for whatever a thousand years is eliminated, banned on pain of torture and death, although you know, that doesn't really happen. A lot of it, people seem to collapse pretty quickly, probably a generation or two or three or four of it going underground. Um, yeah. But, you know, there, there are some, you know, we, we talked about Hypatia, we mentioned Hypatia at the beginning of the first episode, you did a great book on that. You know, we see incidents of the destruction, Christians destroying temples and statues and that kind of stuff, um, the murder of Hypatia. But really, there's a major shift, however you want to take you know, Some people will see it as a positive. Some people see it as a negative. But either way, it's a major shift. So can we talk a little bit about those two things and your views on where they fit in terms of this decline story? So I think there's a really interesting moment that happens after the death of Constantine, um, where Christians now do not have this figure who is kind of untouchable. They have sons, young sons. Uh, and there's also, at the same time, this realization that the world is not ending. Uh, and what you have is instead of Roman Empire. What is a Christian Roman Empire then? And they've never really struggled with this question. You know, what if, if the world doesn't end, but you have a Christian state and it's going to extend into the future, what does that look like? And what does that mm -hmm. state actually consist of? And so the first generation of Christian thinkers to address this are people like Eusebius of Caesarea, and they don't have a model at all for this. So what they do is they go back to the Old Testament and they find a sort of model of, okay, well, what we do is we suppress the religion that the Israelites found in um, Canaan, and we make everyone Jews, and that's how we perform God's mission. 
Uh, and so this is the model for Christianizing the Roman Empire, is um, not out-competing traditional religion, though they believe that that should be something that's done too, but suppressing it. Uh, and that's a process that emperors start getting underway in the 340s. Um, it's a hit or miss process. The Emperor Julian reverses it. But it's an ideal that a lot of Roman emperors in the fourth century are pursuing. It's not until the 380s that they actually, that an emperor, actually two emperors, but the Emperor Theodosius in particular, goes all in with this vision. And the vision was basically shut the temples, give a lot of money to the churches, and everybody will just stop going to the temples and they'll all go to the churches. And this is Theodosius's, this is what he'd been promised, what the Roman church had been promised for 40 years. Um, when Constantinople is created, it's part of basically Constantine's reorientation of the empire so that it is integrating the East as well as the West. But it's, again, originally one of these regional capitals. And it's under Theodosius that the ceremonial of, the, of Constantinople kind of becomes permanent. And it becomes a permanent um, fixture of the sort of second capital of the Roman Empire. And it has a Christian veneer. Uh, and so what's going on in the ceremonial of Constantinople in the 380s, it's being designed at the same time that Theodosius is pushing this model of a Roman Empire without pagan stuff in it. Uh, and so Constantinople's kind of ceremonial life, unlike the city of Rome, is being constructed around an idea of this Christian future. What's interesting, though, is they get this, right? Theodosius does this, and mm -hmm. it isn't working. You still have pagans doing pagan things. You still have um, people going to funerals and doing pagan stuff. They are doing things that Christian bishops say they shouldn't be doing. And the state has to figure out how you, you now, what is like phase 2.0 of the Christian empire? Since we did what we'd been saying would make a Christian empire, you know, since the 330s, we did it. It didn't actually make a Christian empire. What do we do now? Um, and it really isn't until the reign of the Emperor Justinian, um, starting really in the 520s and 530s, that we see the state finally say, yeah, we're done with this. If you are a pagan, you no longer have the same rights as a Christian. If you're a pagan, you aren't a full citizen of the empire anymore. And you can't just say you're a Christian. You can't just go get baptized. You have to actually believe it. So if you're a disingenuous Christian, you also don't have full rights. Um, but it takes until the 530s for them to say, as a pagan, you cannot make a legal will. As a pagan, you cannot hold a job in the empire. As a pagan, you, know, you, you do not have the ability to endow an institution. As a pagan, your citizen rights are different than a Christian citizen rights. And so that's the end point of all of this. But it takes a really long time for them to get to the point where they are not just trying to sort of manage from the top down the infrastructure of the empire to make everybody kind of move in a direction where they become Christian. Um, but where you're actually saying, you know what, like you're not part of the Roman people in a full way if you're not a Christian. And so it's really, I think, in the 520s that we see the state go to the point where it says to be Roman and to be Christian is the same thing. You cannot be entirely Roman unless you're Christian. And this isn't, um, it, this isn't a natural thing, and there's lots of blowback on Justinian for doing this. Um, because again, it gets, very, it gets back to where we started, this fundamental promise that as a person participating in the Roman polity, you have particular rights that are respected because you belong to this polity. 
And it's with Justinian for the first time that you have someone saying, those rights don't extend to you as a non-Christian. Mm. Um, and so I think that's in a way kind of the end of this, this story where um, Justinian is using the power of the imperial office to basically, uh, you know, take away the fundamental rights of what it meant to be a Roman for 1,200 years. And not just any Christian, you know, you, you had to be a Trinitarian. Uh, you had to be, you know, the... the His version, yeah. Yeah, the accepted version of Christianity. Like, I think what a lot of people don't realize until you study this period is what it, what a Christian, what it meant to be a Christian even in the 400s and 500s wasn't I think until the 700s it wasn't really nailed down there were lots of different ideas and of course some of them were minor some of them were quite significant there were a lot of lot of Christians for hundreds and hundreds of years that believed that Jesus was just a man he wasn't a god he was just a man which probably you know goes back to some of the early Jewish Christian um, sects or cults that were around in Paul's time in Jerusalem. Um, because, of course, one could easily argue that for a Jew to say that Jesus was a god was possibly bordering on their version of, of heresy or blasphemy. Um, so you have this... You have this uh, fight, this civil war uh, amongst Christians uh, to figure out, you know, which version of Christianity is going to win. Um, Theodosius, of course, uh, <laughs> gets uh, forced in, in, in a way by the Bishop of Milan, Ambrose at the time. He basically gets excommunicated unless he, uh, his, his only way back in to the church is to once and for all uh, outlaw all other forms of worship and philosophy in the empire. Mm. And then you get, you, you get the empire moved to Constant, the seat of the empire moved to Constantinople. Um, so, you know, Augustus or Octavian created a civil war with Mark Antony because he spread the rumor that he was going to move, uh, he was going to move to Alexandria, right? Here we are, hundreds of Full years circle. later. I mean, yeah, you know, I don't know what Augustus would have thought of all of this. Um, <laughs> and then skipping right ahead to, I mean, we we have to skip, you know, the 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 sack of Rome. And again, the, but the point I like always like to remind people about that is the Goths were themselves Christians. Uh, they, mm -hmm. you know, um, Augustine doesn't like to. Uh, dwell on that subject but they were actually christians that came and sacked sacked rome um then you end up with this great story um the when the the final fall of constantinople to the muslims um a thousand years later where you get this situation that we've talked about on our renaissance series um where the the um, Greek Orthodox basically try and do a deal with the Pope and the Catholics <laughs> back in Italy mm. to defend them against the Muslim menace. And the Catholics say, the Pope uh, and, and, and his uh, friends over in the Italian states, 
basically cook up a deal, say, yes, we will come and defend you with our money and our superior armies in the whole deal, but you have to accept the Pope as the leader. We have to heal the Great Schism. Uh, Christianity has to reunite. And uh, Constantine is at the 11th. Uh, is he the guy? The, yes. I've seen his statue in Athens at the little ter- at the little um, Greek Orthodox church somewhere in Athens. We were in Athens a couple of years ago doing a tour with some of our listeners. Uh, he and the and the patriarch of the Greek Orthodox Church agree to the conditions. They go back home. They say to <laughs> the people of Constantinople, "All our problems are over. The Italians are going to come in and save us. All we need to do." Is uh, accept the Pope as the leader of the legion, and <laughs> sure, <laughs> they no go hell no. We're not. What are you? Are you crazy? <laughs> We're not doing that. Yeah. We would rather die at the hands of the Muslims than accept and have the them Pope take over. And yeah. rather than than bring yeah. Christianity together, it's a, it's a yeah. mind blowing story to me. What do you? I think. What, what do I, you make of all of that, sir? One of the interesting parts of that story is uh, the people who are pushing back against this. I mean, well, there's two aspects. I mean, first, the West does not have the capacity to do this. So they're, they're promising yeah. things. They can't deliver this. <laughs> no, there's no, no ability in the West to go and fight the Ottomans. They could barely so not fight know, each other every other day of the week, let alone, you know. And, you know, and when they try to fight the Ottomans, they don't even get through Hungary. And the Ottomans mm-hmm. come and, you know, it, it, yeah. it, isn't, it isn't actually a substantial promise anyway. But um, but what you see among the people who resist this are a couple of different attributes. There's kind of maybe three ways that people respond to this um, in a negative fashion. One group of people says basically, well, we went to this expecting that the Catholics were going to, you know, listen to us. And the uh, agreement we would get would be on our terms. And because it's not on our terms, we shouldn't have done it at all. Um, and yeah. there's a group of people influenced by the, the philosopher Plathon, um, who ultimately come down to this idea that, well, you know, the whole Roman legacy of the Greek people, the fact that basically the Roman Empire is run by Greeks, Greek speakers for a thousand years, and the people in Constantinople call themselves Romans, even though what we see the language that they speak is Greek, um, that was all a big mistake. And really, like, we should get rid of this because the Roman legacy now is so corrupted that, like, let it go. And what we should wait for is, like, let the Ottomans come in and we will have a great Greek king rise up and overthrow the Ottomans. And, you know, it takes 400 years, but eventually they do get <laughs> one from Germany, who's not really Greek, but, um, right. you know, that's, that's what happens. But then there's another group that says, in essence, well, this is wrong. Um, we don't, the religious uh, ideas of the Catholic Church are wrong. We don't want them. We're not going to accept them. Um, but it's all okay, because what's going to happen in the end is, our state will either almost fall, and there's a group of people in Constantinople who believe that the Ottomans will breach the walls and get as far as the statue of Constantine and Constantine's Forum, and then a great kind of Christian champion will rise up and defeat the Ottomans, and the Roman Empire will go back to the border that it had in the 4th century with the Persian sure. Empire. Um, yeah. And so they actually feel like, well, we can we, we don't need to listen to this. We don't need to agree with the Catholic doctrine. We don't need to agree with the Catholic leadership because, frankly, like, well, let the city fall, right? And then this great mm. champion will rise up and it'll all be fine. Mm. Uh, and so they, 
there is in the middle of what everybody at that moment acknowledges is an empire that is teetering on the edge of collapse, this kind of hopefulness that there's going to be some future that will be better than the current time. Uh, and it will be a future that exists um, in a way that kind of brings back what made the Roman Empire good when it was good. Uh, and, you know, and that isn't the Council of uh, Florence Ferrara, right? It's not an agreement with the Pope. It's instead mm. something that will be our own. Um, mm -hmm. And if that means the walls are breached, then that's what mm. it means. And if that mm. means that we're conquered for a little while, then that's what it means. But mm. it's a price you there's pay. a total comfort in this weird way with um, because they're Romans, because they have this history of recovering from things, we'll let it go, right? We don't. Yeah, we'll be fine in the out. end. We'll get what we want. Yeah. It'll be better in yeah. Right. Well, see, to me, that's one of the amazing things. Uh, one of the themes that runs through your book is, yeah, something bad happens, then we'll bounce back and we'll be better than we were before, and and it just plays itself out and out over again. And and the optimism is just. It's surreal to me. So Rome is sacked, and then Constantinople is sacked in the, when, the, when the 1400s, and this goes on. But even then, they're like, no, this will work out. And you, you got to take the long view, but this is going to work out. And um, and I, I think obviously we're skipping a lot of the second half of your book because we want to leave it for the readers. But the second half is just as we'll incredible as the first for half the next with, three with the ideas. podcast that we do where we bring for the next three hours. <laughs> no, but what, and I did not know this that the um, so you got Charles, the Holy Roman Empire, who's like, yeah, I can help take back some of the stuff. We'll get a bunch of gold from the New World. We'll use it to raise an army, and we'll start doing this. But not until correct me if I'm wrong. Um, the French and the Ottoman Empire, Ottoman Empire, excuse me, actually team up against Charles of the Holy Roman Empire and subdue him. And not until like that moment when he is taken down or he's forced to step down. I'm not sure exactly. Is there? They, do they finally stop talking about this great restoration of Rome? It takes all the way up until the 1500s before they're like, you know what? I don't think this is going to bounce back the way we think it is. I mean, but that kind of faith was I wrong? is incredible. Was I, <laughs> was I wrong? Did I, did I get that wrong? Hey, yeah, but I that's say, incredible If I was me. wrong... <laughs> I mean, Charles V is spectacular because, you know, right. in addition to all of what you just described... He also mm -hmm. has Martin Luther to deal with. That's right. right. So you, <laughs> That's right. So you, you have a whole emperor who's actually also yeah. Spanish king who has <sighs> people in the Holy Roman Empire in Germany who won't let the Spaniards who who he works with um, interfere right. in his running of the Holy Roman Empire. He has conquistadors oh, yeah. going and conquering Mexico and, and Peru and sending him money that he uses to invade Tunisia. And the whole time he's sort of nurturing this idea that he can go and, and restore Constantinople because that's a common yeah. goal of the Holy Roman emperors and the Spanish kings, and he's both. But right. it all falls apart because he, you know, he, he, his armies actually sack the city of Rome because he falls into a conflict with the Pope. But he's in a conflict yeah. with the Pope while he's also in a conflict with Martin Luther. And so it's all this kind of juggling of all of these historical legacies and the sort of future of European colonization of the new world, all kind of coming together in this one career. And yeah. uh, at one point, his sister, who is um, associated with the, the kingdom in Hungary, she actually says to him, 
like, no one man can do all of this. Why don't you just right. kind of step down and stop? And uh, in the yeah. end, it wears him out so much that he retires to a monastery and the Spanish kingdom and the Holy Roman Empire, they split apart. Um, and, you know, no one wow. ever brings it back together again in the way that he did. But um, I think the other side of that is that's an age of these kind of great figures, right? It's mm-hmm. it's Charles V, it's Suleiman the Magnificent, it's Martin Luther, right. it's um, mm. Pizarro, Giants. you know. It's just this, this kind of world of, of supermen. Um, mm, and yeah. that was not the time you were going to do something as dramatic as reconquer Constantinople. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's there's so much. I just want to say real quick, there's so much we have left out, but it's going to be okay because Mussolini is going to revive the Roman Empire. It's going to be fine. Going to be fine. Ronald Reagan, too. Ronald Reagan, too. (laughs) Well, Professor Watts, uh, we should let you go and get on with your night. We could obviously talk to you um, for uh, days on end. It's... I, I, and without wanting to um, blow smoke, I really did enjoy the book. It's epic, um, yes. and you know it. it you know, and, and getting back to what I said at the beginning, looking at the United States today, uh, you know, the themes obviously, and this is obviously trite, and people have been comparing the United States with with the fall of Rome or the Roman Empire for for a lot longer than I've been alive. Um, <laughs> But the, the the theme of empires, the, the the rise and the decline of empires is obviously one that's fascinated people forever. Continued fascinated uh, Livy and and Tacitus, and it fascinates us. And I think your book is is uh, really tremendous. This um, the scope of it, the narrative. Uh, it's mm. a it's a major mm. work. So. Thank you for your contribution to uh, the uh, you know my bookshelf, and uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on and spending a few hours talking to us. That's uh, oh, this uh, is a lot of fun. I there's so much ground we covered. This was really great, and I, I feel like we have three more hours at least of Christianity yeah. to talk about yeah. now. <laughs> Yeah, and we would love to have you come back on uh, and talk more about it. Uh, you know, even perhaps on our Renaissance show where we're, you know. Oh yeah, anytime. Oh, Bruno, uh, Bruni. Who, who am I thinking of? Brunelleschi. We're, we're, Bruni. We're, Bruni. We're yeah. currently... Bruni and Biondo are both. Uh, they're fun. Yeah. They're a lot of fun in yeah. this way. We're currently twenty-one episodes, which is twenty-one hours into a series on Leonardo da Vinci in our Renaissance show, which is a couple of hundred. We're a couple oh, wow. hundred episodes into the thing, but yeah. So <laughs> I don't know if you've written a book on da Vinci recently, but we've had a whole bunch of da Vinci scholars on talking about that. But uh, the last yeah. time I left the country was to see the da Vinci uh, exhibit in oh. Paris. Oh, I'm jealous. When was that? Oh, it was incredible. It was in Paris at the Louvre. Um, in February of nineteen of uh, twenty twenty, and oh, so we were wow. literally there with all of the signs saying like, "Oh, there's been a COVID case in Charles de Gaulle." We're like, "Yeah, okay, whatever." We go into this exhibit. <laughs> there's probably two thousand people in this space. Right, and everybody's packed in. Nobody yeah. thought a thing about it because you're just so entranced by all of this. And then, right. Eh. <laughs> well, I tell you, after after three t- weeks later. About him- after talking about him for 21 hours, um, and we're only halfway through, I think he's, you know, yeah. we've just done the we've just done the 1790s, fall of, the fall of Milan, I think, or the fall of Sforza, I think, yeah, right. So yeah, um, something like that. 
we've got, a, you know, he's only middle-aged. <laughs> we've got a lot to go. But yeah. I have such a, a <laughs> such a much greater appreciation for him than, you know, that's how history works, right? You, you, you drill into these things and you're like, wow, this is such a great story. Um, and so thank you anyway for yeah. giving of your time. I, I hope the book does very oh, sure. well and you're always welcome to come on and, and have a chat. Oh, anytime. Yeah, this was so much fun and it was so thorough and um, – it was just great. So I, I really appreciate you guys taking this time too. Well, uh, it's our pleasure and we'll have to send you another mug now to replace the Sula mug and um, <laughs> we'll do that. 